Welcome to the Apple of Truth, our bi-weekly podcast where we nerd out about our favorite TV shows. Currently, we are covering every single episode of Good Omens based on the book by Sir Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And because we are who we are, we focus on details you didn't need, but for sure deserved. Surprise! We have recorded too far in advance. I know it's shocker we got ahead of ourselves. So this needed to be added in post-production. We're so professional. As you learned last episode, where we interrupted our scheduled program, we went to a convention. And since we are us, we talked a lot about the podcast. Yeah, we were kind of intensely, overwhelmingly pushing it on everybody. You're welcome, by the way. And two of the people that we repeatedly talked to about this became our patrons. Yay! Yay! So here's a shout out to our very new, definitely brand new patron, Lucia. Thank you so much for joining the Believer Level Patronage. And we are very grateful for you to be here. And here's a shout out for Katie, who has returned into the foldeth on her rightful place as a believer. We missed you dearly. If you, dear listener, also want to shout out, join them over at our Patreon. And now back to our scheduled program. I'm Lena. And I'm Vero. And today we're talking about episode 6, the very last day of the rest of their lives. You know, I love that I never change the name of the episode in my notes when it's my turn saying it. But when you are supposed to be saying it, I always change it. Just in case I forget it. Yeah, I do it for you. Exactly. Also, this is once again a title that gets name dropped in the episode. God says it. Oh, I wasn't listening to her. Fuck her. No, that's a joke. For legal reasons, that's a joke. (laughs) For legal reasons, that's a joke? No, fuck God. She definitely plays games with the universe. Oh, she, yeah, certainly. Yeah, unlike Gabriel stated. Gabriel really comes through this episode. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're going to talk about him. But before we talk about the episode in general, let me present to you my summary for the final time of this season one of Good Ometh. Good ometh. <laughs> the showdown for the world boils down to You're not my dad! And Anathema finally decides to forge her own path. But much more importantly, our ineffable husbands are back together, play their respective sides completely for fools, and are now their very own side. Aww. Yay! Yeah. Ah, oh, there's so much pleasure in this episode for me. I love it. Oh yeah, so there much. was a lot of beautiful things. Though honestly, I enjoyed this on a level where I did not take as many notes as I usually do, so that was very surprising to me. It sometimes happens when you just enjoy watching it flow and yeah, then but suddenly you're much... three scenes later and you're like, yeah. "Oh, I should have probably taken a note at least of what happened so I don't get completely thrown oh, yeah. when Vera throws shit at me." <laughs> I mean, I feel like I got way more lost in this show than I did in Lucifer because Lucifer is much more clearly structured. Yes, yeah, so, you're not wrong. Oh, well. All right, your turn. Speaking of the show being slightly different to Lucifer, <laughs> British word of the episode. I'm so curious. I only have one. I hope you don't have the same one as me. Oh, uh, well, I'm just really glad that I'm starting this segment because 
oh fuck i'm happy that i get to choose this and i really hope for you that this is not the same one however my word is brandish not the one i have very good incredible so it is used in the context where aziraphal tells shadwell that he's gonna have to brandish the gun yes so what i thought it meant is use yeah like brandish a sword that would also have been like throw around use However, what it actually means, wave or flourish. So wave around, show off rather than actually use. Pew, pew, use. So wave or flourish something, especially a weapon, it's used as a threat or in anger or excitement. Wow. I did not realize that brandishing a sword, which is how I'm usually familiar with that word, does not mean using the sword, but just showing it off, basically. Threatening with yeah. it. Yeah, waving it around. Threatening wow. it is, is, a, is a good way to put it. The more you know. I'm really happy we're doing this segment. Damn. I, I love etymology of everything. By the way, if I haven't mentioned Susie Dent in this segment, I am doing it now, please. Everybody follow her on Twitter. She is incredibly funny and she loves and shares a lot of history words and new words and their etymology. She is incredible. The etymology of this word, it is a descendant of the Middle English brandition, mm-hmm. which comes from the Anglo-French brand or brown, which is a word of Germanic origin that means sword. Wow. I'm glad that you mentioned the sword because it does come from sword swishing, actually. Or So brandishing a sword is sorting a sword. Basically, like <laughs> sorting around a sword. Etymology. That. It's perfect. And it has Sorting been first sword. Okay. It has Good. been first documented in the 14th century, so it's a very very old word. So, I very much enjoyed looking that one up. Oh, wow. Okay, I have something completely different. Yay. Do you remember where this was Do used? Do you remember? Because my very British word of the episode is tickety-boo. Crowley slash Aziraphale uses it. Yeah, when Aziraphale, who is already Crowley dressed up as Aziraphale, is being captured, he says tickety-boo, which... No, the other way around. Uh, Aziraphale dressed up as Crowley, when he gets captured, says tickety-boo as he's basically thrown onto the floor, which is the first dead giveaway that they switched faces. There is a few of those... Beforehand, for example. But not as much in your face. But Crowley would never use this Britishness, basically. That is very correct. Even though half the shit Zeraphil says sounds very British, but it's actually American origin. So what did I think it means? I have absolutely no idea. I think it means it went swillingly. Uh, okay, Not well, so. you're... No, it, it's it's just very light and, and breezy. Light and breezy. I'm gonna go with light and breezy. No, well, your first approach was better. <laughs> what it actually means, so it is old-fashioned informal British for as it should be, correct, satisfactory, which I did not expect. It, it, yeah, yeah, that so, in, in context it makes sense. So where does it come from? Too long didn't read? Nobody knows. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and that was our British word of the episode segment. (laughs) But because obviously I'm me, I still got all the theories together. So, the origin of tickety-boo is uncertain. It is chiefly a British slang. 
Possibly it is taken from an Indo-Aryan language compared to Hindi, thick high babu, it's all right, sir. The phrase could have been picked up by British personnel in India before independence and spread in a modified form from the United Kingdom and elsewhere in the Commonwealth. It may also be a corruption from French, how beautiful you are, adopted similar to toodaloo, bye-bye, which is a corruption of tout à l'heure, see you later today. Yeah, I did not know that that toodaloo was a perversion of French, see you later. Again, I will say it. English is just French with the wrong accent. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. English is the language that steals words from other languages, twists them all out of shape and then claims it was mine all along. That sounds like an England. Yeah, exactly. Like their language is like their history. <laughs> and we are almost sorry to all of our no. English listeners. Oh, no. Like, We're sorry, not history, sorry. History is history and fact. So the French approach would be most likely from World War One. Alternatively, it might also be an extended version of that's the ticket, possibly being influenced by peekaboo. And then like the way peekaboo got turned, (laughs) that's the ticket got turned into tickety-boo. Tickety-boo, peekaboo. But no matter where it actually has been evolved from, it does exist in the English language since 1920s. So just a young 100 years. Yeah. My word is much cooler, older. Well, yours is older. Mine's is funnier. Fair enough. All right, let's get into the facts and funs. Once again, I kept uh, quite a few of dogs in the episode, but there was so much that it turned out much longer than it used to be in the other episode. So we'll see how much actually makes it into the episode. Pepper's line to war, I believe in peace, bitch is a quote from a Tori Amos song, The Waitress. Everyone who listened to my bonus episode on Neil Gaiman knows that Amos and Neil Gaiman have been friends for many years and frequently reference one another in their works. Yeah, I remember. I remember. The ending song for the series, A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square, is performed by Tori Amos as well. Appropriately enough, she had previously drawn the ire of religious groups for the Christian imagery in her song Crucify and referring to to the Antichrist in silent all these years. So we all remember there was this stupid petition against Good Omens that was directed to Netflix instead of Amazon. So Tori Amos and Neil Gaiman, both familiar with their work drawing the ire of religious nutcases. Yay! Hey. Speaking of the song, in the closing song, its lyrics refer to angels dining at the Ritz, which indeed we see Crowley and Aziraphale doing in the final scene. Some fans have interpreted this as evidence of Crowley's eventual redemption, since it refers to angels in the plural. And not angel and a demon. Not that it wouldn't be a mouthful, but... Yeah, but it's interesting. Speaking of Berkeley Square, the square at the end, which is supposed to be Berkeley Square, is in fact Tavistock Square. Tavistock? Yeah, according to IMDb. Gabriel says, God does not play games with the universe, echoing Albert Einstein's famous criticism of quantum theory. God does not play dice with the universe. Okay. I mean, it's close enough, so I'm going to let that one count. This one is going (laughs) to make you happy. Dick Turpin really was a notorious highwayman who was active in the 1730s. How fucking cool is that? I love that. And I love that Anathema decides to ask. We'll get to that. And then we have two facts that I did not notice while I was watching the episode. 
episode. In episode one, Peppa says that she's upset that she wanted a cool bike with flames, but instead she got a girl's bike with a basket. In the finale, when the them meet up on their bikes, Peppa is riding a girl's bike painted red with flames and Adam has a basket on his bike to hold dog. Adam's bike is also a Rayleigh chopper, a vintage model from the 1970s, which go for hundreds to thousands on eBay. So fucking expensive bike. Wow. Do you think he... He willed it? Willed it into existence? Maybe not the pricing, but maybe he was like, oh, this is exactly like looking like the bike he wants. Yeah, this is... I want this bike. Oh, I now have this bike. And the other is, as Crowley, David Tennant clicks his fingers to open the bookstore doors, much like he did to open the TARDIS as Doctor Who. Ouch. I did not notice that, I have to say. I noticed it, but I didn't connect it. Oh my God, that just hurt me straight in the feels because he can do it at the beginning. and then Then he can. No, I did not mean to make you sad this time. And that concludes the facts and funs. Previously on Good Omens. <laughs> Was this American enough? Yes. Wow. I figured that since we were doing American show, British accent, we could do it the other way around now. Well, why didn't you think of this for episode one? Okay. Because finale. Ta-da! Uh-huh. We're going to talk about this in the summoning. So, dear listeners who have not listened to six seasons of Lucifer, after every season that we cover, we do one episode where we talk about the season. And that is called our summoning because Vero cannot pronounce some words. Vero chooses to no. make English interesting. No, it's sometimes not a choice. And thus, we shall have a summoning episode coming out soonish. Yes, exciting. Adam is kicked by the them and comes to his senses. But them, the other them, have already set World War Three in motion. Anathema and Newt get together, wink wink, just to realize where the apocalypse is happening. And the angel and the demon are finally reunited after going through their respective troubles on their way to that field. The scene is set. Everyone is there. Okay, that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. I give you that. I give you that. Thank you. We start this with something obviously not right after we left the last episode and I was like, oh no, this is further into the future. We're missing some context. This is going to be a flashback. And yes, it's a flashback, even though we do a proper back dialing. So it's flesh front. Yeah, I hate it. I am not a fan of any kind of flashback stuff. See, I normally hate when they do this whole like 24 hours earlier or something like that. But I did not even notice it because I was just so confused about what was happening. And then I realized what was happening. And I was just going with the episode and completely forgot about the beginning because selective memory and such. Actually, if you watch this scene and you know where this is heading, you can see that Crowley or in a parentheses Crawley is just a little too polite I was kind of struggling to put this in words but he feels kind of stagnant if you know what I mean because if you watch Crowley actual Crowley he never stops moving he's always he's always lanky he's all limbs and corners and everything and Aziraphale is very resting very very static defined very static so yeah so you can already if you know you're looking for this you can already see that David Tennant is very static in this scene let's get into the airbase and we are flashbacking just before where we finished up last episode we have the car driving in 
We hear Bohemian Rhapsody. Once again. For the third time. Him, Crowley getting out of the car, walking up to Azrafel, complimenting him. Walking so much like Crowley. Like, he has such a Crowley walk. It's incredible. I love this so much. I don't think that you mentioned it on the podcast yet. Can you? I'm sorry, can you say it again? <laughs> no, like, seriously, especially given the contrast that we later on see when Azrafel is pretending to be Crowley. And we see him move here and we have the direct comparison. Mm -hmm. It's even more noticeable. And I just love this lanky, lengthy, limp walk that he has. It's... Oh. I love David Tennant. He is incredible. And then the car explodes. And the my favorite car. part of that moment is that you can just hear anywhere the wind <laughs> blows at the end. And I lost it at that point because I didn't realize this is when it plays. And it's just so fucking perfectly placed in that scene. It's so funny. Also, the only reason the car exploded is because Crowley got distracted looking at Azarafel. Yes. Skirts, and uh, no, just looking at Azrafel. Yes, looking or and interacting with Azrafel. Yeah, and he's concentrating. So there's literally no doubt in my brain that that is the only reason why the car fell apart because his mental capacity was not enough to keep the car together and be overjoyed with reuniting with Azrafel. Absolutely yes. no question there. Good, I'm glad that we're on the same page for once. Well, this time we apparently did watch the same episode. <laughs> Not like the last one. No, the previous to last one. No, which one? I don't remember. The there was one, one episode. The third one. Yes, the third one was the episode where we watched two different episodes. Sorry, it's been a while and once again, I'm ill. Yay! Oh, wait, that was the same episode where you were ill last time. Yep. Look at that. And I was also very tired when we recorded that one. Well, let's hope we keep Parallels. watching the same episode. Anywhere the wind blows. So this is all happening and Crow is going through this emotional turmoil. They have a little problem in form of a soldier with a gun. Yeah, Americans and guns. Shadwell is being Shadwell and he's like, oh, I'm going to use my finger on you. Which sounds way dirtier than it was meant in the episode. And um, It was still funny. It was funny. And Azarafel is expecting Crowley to do something about it and he keeps pushing him to. Because he's the good one. Yeah, I can't do things like that, I, you know. Which, fair enough, but also my dude. His car just exploded. Yeah. His second love of his life, the very second to you yourself, has died. You can't yes. do this to him. Give him a second. Show a then. little empathy, my dude. And I think Crowley literally says, I'm having a moment here. And I yeah. don't blame him. Like, come on. I don't think we've ever seen him be like that towards Azarafel. I feel like this is the first time that he actually been a bit snippy. That he's that short with him? Absolutely. And this is why he immediately, Azarafel turns around and gets rid of the guy. Because, because he really he Realizes he fucked yeah. up. So yes. I love the fact that Zirafel sends the soldier somewhere, but he doesn't know where he sent him. How does he not know? Yeah, so that is very curious. Love that. Also, that want to put this question. on the question list. Yes. Okay, yes. good. My question to Michael Sheen, because I feel like Michael Sheen will come up with some very good elaborate story. Hopefully so. Also, if we ever happen to randomly meet the random actor who played that soldier, I would ask that person as well. <laughs> Where do yes. you think Zirafel sent your person? Crowley says, you were a good car. And I feel like this is the first time he compliments anything that he liked because he never complimented his car. Anything, not anyone. Okay. Because he ruled his house plans with a reign of terror An and fear. Fist. 
and he basically forced his car to work through his power of imagination and sheer will. So I really don't think that he had ever said anything nice about anything that he liked that he owned and so him saying you were a good car is very soft of him and i like it soft really, crowley it really shows that he loved that car yeah i like soft crowley so mm, i'm not gonna say it <laughs> please do because i don't know what you mean i like hard crowley <laughs> nice nice well then you are in luck because hard crowley is now <laughs> back in business or as the zero says It's time to lick butt. It's so sweet when he tries to be cool. It actually reminded me of you when you sometimes mess up your English. 99% of the time I do mess it up on purpose. Uh, no. Not when we're recording. <laughs> I said 99% of the time. Crowley finishes this scene by saying, for heaven's sake. And then he stops himself and goes, I can't believe I just said that. Which I don't really get it. Like, come on been so long it doesn't really matter which side you say just say for fuck's sake <laughs> fair enough and we pop over to for hodgeback lane for one second it is 16 minutes to apocalypse yep sir mr i believe you remember his name mm, pete something pete tyler pete supposedly oh, yeah, of course because <laughs> pete tyler supposedly i did not read up on it i did not double check i'm sorry Pete tyler walks past adam's house and adam's dad with his fucking and dog adam's dad tries to hide behind the car because he doesn't want to talk to him i love that so much nobody wants to fucking talk to him but they do get into a discussion regarding adam obviously we share this information with adam's dad that he indeed was running towards or riding towards the airbase and we had a little thing dropped here where Pete Tyler goes don't blame me if he starts the World War 3 yep not that far off he is truly he is not I mean even a ginormous asshole will sometimes be right doesn't make him any less of an asshole even broken clock is correct twice a day yeah that is true I hate that idiom but it's very correct We go into the intro and I actually thought we were going to talk about it today, but we're not. We're talking about this in the summoning episode, but Good I want to spoiler a bit. I actually found several analyses, analyses, whatever the plural of analysis Analysi. is. And there is so much more in there than I was aware. So mm. we have to set aside a good chunk in the summoning episode when we talk about yes. this. yes. So, back to the airbase. Did you also feel like this was an old-timey Western? Like, Western showdown? It was kind of shot that way, it felt. And the music and how they're positioned and everything. Mm -hmm. So, we get to see Anathema and Newt sneaking up on the building. They are there just in time to see our four riders, horsemen of the apocalypse. The bad leave. them. In my mm. notes and in my brain, it's the bad them and the good them. Okay, <laughs> bad them and good Because them. Because that makes it easier. I call them them and the them. I like my approach more But because yeah, it's your, clearer. Your approach is definitely clearer. We pop back inside to see a little bit more 
of Anathema and Newt figuring out what's happening. And Anathema explains that they have negative auras, which makes sense if we don't try to identify the colors, but just focus on the fact that they have negative aura. And also she states that she doesn't believe they're quite human. Yes, that is also true. Which makes sense. And that is true, and it gets confirmed later on when Adam confronts them. In the scene, though, we get Anathema turning on the sound on some of the screens and so we get to hear what the people are saying. The German that was being spoken is actual German and it's good Ooh. German and he says, isn't there anyone who can repair this? Because he says, ist denn hier niemand, der das reparieren kann? And that is, isn't there anyone who can repair this? And I love that he literally says repair. He doesn't say fix it. He says repair. Lovely. We go back outside and I'm not sure if it is obvious before or after we go with Newt and Anathema. But we see the good them and the bad them lined up facing each other. And we see that Brian is matched with pollution, that mm -hmm. war is matched with pepper, that death is matched with Adam, and that Wensleydale is matched with hunger. But now it is time for Aziraphale to take action, or rather oh. for Aziraphale to tell Shitwell that he needs to do something. Oh yeah, this is where it gets a bit messy, mm -hmm. but the solution of that is really, really great. Oh yeah, absolutely. So finally we get the ineffable husbands come into the scene of the apocalypse, while Death is very aggressively trying to convince Adam to do their bidding. To basically do his job, to live up to his potential, it's very rah rah rah. Yeah, didn't like that at all. I enjoyed that Adam didn't like that either. Thank oh, you yeah. Much, Adam. Oh yeah. I was not a fan of Adam being a tiny little shit the entire series, but now it's finally paying off and I'm very much here for him being a fucking little shit. <laughs> little asshole. I love him in one on one hand. Now I really enjoy the conversation though, in general. Adam nearly gets shot by two people in one and we get this beautiful fight where again the actress who plays Madame Tracy is absolutely incredible she plays this whole struggle so so well and she stops Azarafal from shooting at Adam Adam doesn't give a fuck about that oh, of course not of course not because why would he he would probably be able to stop the brick slash bullets or whatever came out brick. of that thing so he doesn't have to worry about that. He goes, hmm, you're two people. Why are you two people? You shouldn't be two people. That is wrong. And this is very Literally. much... Adam does not like it when things are wrong in his perception. And he instantly fixes it. So Zarafal has his buddy back. Which it's very nice because... This would have been a problem. Aziraphil had no way of creating himself a body or anything. So this is a very nice, easy solution. Yeah, especially now that he is not in favor of heaven anymore. But here comes the first moment where we get a very simple, straightforward solution that actually makes so much sense and it works oh, yeah. really, really well. And there's a few of these coming up, so... I just want to point out that Aziraphale originally wanted Shitwell to shoot the kid and Shitwell straight up refuses, which, nice enough. I mean, wow. He's growing. No, the bar's really low that we say yay for not shooting a child. <laughs> you know? With a break in a head. So I wanted to point that out. And with that, splitting up the two people into two bodies once again, we go back inside to Anathema and Newt. And obviously, we are looking towards what Agnes has to say with a randomly picked prophecy. Agnes says, He is not what he says he is. 
together. They really are a good team. As much as I'm not a fan of this pairing because of previously stated reasons, they are a very good team. No doubt yes. about it. I'm so happy for them. We are going back outside. And we get confirmation, by the way, um, for what you stated, I think last or previous before that episode when you said that Dog is no longer a hellhound. Yeah. Because, I don't know if you remember, because you said that and I was like, no, nah, you sure he's not really a hellhound? Like, I, I wasn't fully on board. But mm -hmm. we do get confirmation here because God tells Dog a former hellhound. Oh, I completely missed that. Thank you for pointing that out, actually. And so, Thanks. you're right. Nice. We go back outside. We have this really weird situation where War is just like, who, who, who? Brandishing the sword. I was just going to say brandishing the sword. I love this segment so much. I'm sorry. <laughs> for no reason whatsoever. Oh, no. She's showy for... as fuck. Yeah, I mean, come on. It's like, oh, look at me. I'm so... But, you know, it feels right because War is a lot about judging who has a bigger dick. And performance issues. And performance issues, yes. So, so her sword is a penis. Also, her sword is the sword, which I did not expect. Finally. Oh, did yeah. you not actually realize that? No. Oh my god, yes, it is the flaming sword. Yeah, but also that means if Israfel had not handed over his sword to Adam and Eve when they were banished from the garden, the sword could never have been given to war and this would never have happened. So from the very beginning, even his kindness was part of the ineffable plan, which is incredibly fucked up by God because Israfel keeps getting shit for having given away the sword and he feels bad <laughs> yeah. about it but it was necessary and I hate that Indeed it was. so when initially you said fuck her or something or like uh, when you were being mean about God and then you were I'm joking for legal reasons like no fuck her mm -hmm. I'm very upset with the ineffable plan yeah. because it unnecessarily tortures so many characters and creatures it's it. all a game yeah fuck it I'm very much against it <sighs> Okay, War is showing off. Adam is just not impressed. He's just standing there looking at her going like, yeah, whatever, do whatever you want. But Pepper is coming up to the plate now. Oh, yeah. And this is an absolutely amazing scene. I fucking love it because <laughs> War comes after Pepper. Well, and War Pepper tries. Snaps, tries to. And Pepper slaps back so hard. So Pepper goes that... <laughs> I'm not a boy because war refers to little boys. And so Pepper obviously goes like, ha ha, wait a second, not a boy, okay? <laughs> well, actually. And then she goes, my mom says that war is just masculine imperialism executed on a global stage. And Fuck I have yeah. to say, it's a bit simplified, but it's also not wrong. It is. It is a little bit simplified. However, she is a child raised by hippies, so... Yeah, but also, it's not wrong. Absolutely not wrong. So Absolutely. I was so here for it. Also, given how young Pepper is, I love that she has already internalized so much of the teachings, basically, from her parents. Even though she is sometimes at odds with her parents, she seems to be taking in the relevant and good parts of her parents' like positions. So, yay. I'm, I'm very much here for Pepper. I'm very much here for Pepper's family. And then, of course, she goes and does the very fucking best thing possible. She kicks war in the shin. Yep. Which 
Wow. But she only does that after War tells her to go play with dolls. And Pepper again slaps back. I do not endorse everyday sexism. Queen, I bow before yeah. you, Pepper. Pepper is by far my favorite them. She rules them. She should rule them, not Adam. And so she kicks War in the shin. She gets the sword after Adam tells her to. And yeah. she fucking stabs War. And then she drops it. Because I wonder, had she not dropped it, if she potentially would have turned into war? That is a good possibility. And I'm pretty sure either that or she would have burned up with her. Oh, yeah, that's also a good risk. Yeah, yeah. It's either or. But neither of these things are obviously good for Pepper. <laughs> yeah, we don't want neither of those things to happen. And then, of course, it's time for the matched up matches with Brian fighting pollution and going that he believes in a clean world, which is obviously hilarious because he's always dirty. Hey, he's dirty, but is the world around him dirty? Of course, there's differences, but still, on a first glance, it's hilarious. So, ha 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 ha. And then, of course, as I said before, we have Wensleydale matched up with Famine. He's struggling a bit and Dog helps him. And in the end, they stand strong with every one of the bad them defeated besides, obviously, death. Yep, because you can't kill Death. Well, also, they do not have their showdown yet, Death and Adam, because that is the match that is yet to come. And we have Crowley pointing out, Oh, Aziraphale, didn't that used to be your sword? Mm-hmm. So that really everyone can notice that the flaming sword lying on the ground is the flaming sword. Yeah. Because like, I only didn't hello? place it when it was not flaming, you know? I mean, listen. We jump down to hell very, very briefly. And they do have the best war chant ever. Encourage the troops and encouragement goes tougher, smarter, more dangerous. <laughs> wow. Repeat after me. Tougher, smarter, more dangerous. However, their beautiful chant gets interrupted by Beelzebub going, oh no, something happened. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. Very much so. We cut back up to the airbase, but we go right in sight to Anathema and Newt. Yes, we need to stop the nuclear apocalypse from happening. So uh, we need to resolve this real fast because as much as we can slow down time on a TV show, <laughs> we need to solve things at some point yeah. and get us out of a immediate danger. So Newt is going to use his superpower. Because Anathema understood what Agnes was saying after hearing the explanation from Newt that he is not an actual computer engineer. And I love that he still insists that he can fix it. Yeah. Even then. He's such a when man. When she goes like, well, come on, just fix it. What would she do to fix this? He, he goes, it's really easy. I would just press this button, fix it, and then open this and click this. And then suddenly everything dies. And so what he says is he would optimize this to run better by defragmentizing or defragmenting the system. Yeah, that's... No. No. It, he's just saying words at that point. Yeah, but no. Like, he doesn't... Like, even the theory, no. No. Yet again, this is a solution to the nuclear apocalypse, which is so simple, yet so effective. Well, it's only simple because he has this fucking super, superpower. Of course, but that's the point. Like We've had this superpower since the moment he met him. Since the moment we met him, we knew of this. This is the first thing we see him do. So it only makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That he's there to perform. To <laughs> perform. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was there to perform On before. On multiple levels. <laughs> oh, my God. We are On 12. all the fronts. We yeah. We go back outside. <sighs> And Death says, 
I am creation's shadow. Now, this is wow. the moment when uh, poor little baby death throws a little tantrum. And this is exactly <laughs> very profound reasoning why he cannot be Discworld Death. Because Discworld Death may play by the rules. He may be impartial, and sen- essentially. However, he does root for humans completely. He's a fan of humanity. He loves it. He doesn't help them unless there's something else from his realm attacking them. But he just roots for them so hard. He isn't menacing. He isn't throwing threats around. because Also, he would he knows, not throw a tantrum. Yeah, he knows he doesn't need to. Because eventually, he will collect everybody's soul. So he just wants everybody to have fun until then. It's just He's a good guy. <laughs> so definitely not the same death. Confirmed. Well, so Dev has the tantrum and does a pretty dramatic exit. <laughs> yeah. I did enjoy Dev's wings. I mean, that looked pretty, pretty nice. That was gorgeous. And then, of course, the Zerophil is all like, oh, well, that was easy. La, 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 la. I was like, no, honey. <laughs> You're way too optimistic. Way too optimistic. We're only halfway through this episode. Come on. Yeah. And, of course, now everyone meets up. And Anathema is like, Ha-ha, I recognize you people. And you, Crowley, you stole my book. And, of course, Crowley brought the book and he throws the book over to her. And since we're where we are, a tiny piece of paper flutters out and Xerophil actually manages to catch it. And we just see, when all is said and done, choose your faces wisely. Later on, we will see the entire prophecy. But, so, this is already filed away for future reference. And this continues on for a while, this scene. Um, we learn that Xerophil was not only supposed to be, like, the guardian angel of the wall of Eden. No, no, he was specifically supposed to guard the tree. Oops. And this makes me think that it is part of the ineffable plan that Crowley and Xerophil fell in love. Yeah. So, wow. <sighs> this is why it's so beautiful to see them come together. Because they were meant to be. Yeah. On too many levels. To me, this makes it bad. But we've had this discussion with free will and predeterminism and everything when we were talking uh, final episode of Lucifer. Yep. So this is a whole situation that's happening here. Gabe and Beelzebub show up. <laughs> on the battlefield. And now we literally have every single one of our relevant characters in one fucking place. <laughs> well, except for Haster. I said relevant. Frogman is relevant. No, he's annoying as fuck. Yes, but without him, the plot wouldn't have moved in several moments. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Without him, as we should. <laughs> <laughs> So we have this great conversation where both Belzebub and Gabriel try to communicate with Adam. And obviously they are shite at it. Like they are so bad at this. It's hilarious. Temporary inconvenience cannot get in the way of the greater good. Also, Belzebub is like talking to Adam like he's five years old or something. It's so, so fucking bad. And Adam is oh, having baby, none of this. You, don't you want to rule the world? Yeah, it's absolutely. But obviously Adams is having none of this. And he goes, like, you are about to fuck everything up just because you want to see whose gang is best. And they are like, yeah, of course. Like, that's a great plan. That's a great plan. And you could rule the world. And Adams says one of the sweetest lines that he has in the entire series here. 
and that is I've got all the world I want. And this is actually really sweet. Like this is one of the very few times where he's not creepy as fuck when he says something. <laughs> What I noticed in this scene is that for some reason Gabriel has super wild fucked up hair. <laughs> The stress, Lena, is the stress. It's it was so, so wild. I wonder if it was deliberate or if they had like problems with his hair or I don't know because like later it looks better. I am 100% convinced that he's just so ruffled. Aziraphale ruffled his feathers. <laughs> And because he has not have the wings out, instead it's ruffled hair. Okay, I can actually live with that. Yes. Speaking of Aziraphale, Aziraphale, where is the Crowley? I don't remember. So one of them asks... Aziraphale starts. Crowley gets on the wagon. The most important question, which is, is the great plan the same as the ineffable plan? Or is it something else? Because everybody knows the great plan, but the ineffable plan is obviously ineffable. So what does it mean? And they ask in the most perfect way, because maybe doing the great plan is the opposite of what the ineffable plan wants. And so, wow. Chaos, 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 chaos. So I have a question about this, actually, because they keep saying that it is written. The great plan is written. Who wrote it? And why would they wrote it against the ineffable plan if they did? But also, did God write it? Is it actually written? Or is everybody just assuming that it's written? Okay, so I took this maybe as a parallel that is completely not intended. But to me, the great plan is basically the Bible and as fallible as the Bible, because the Bible is supposedly God's word written down by humans, but it's not actually God's will because it's written down by humans and humans are fallible. But angels so and demons are just as fallible, obviously. Because angels are definitely fallible because some of them fell. Yeah, and so um, they wrote it down, but the ineffable plan, um, the ineffable plan, by definition, cannot be written down because it's ineffable. And so the great plan can't be the ineffable plan, and so it's very likely that it's actually going against the ineffable plan. And so I took this as a parallel that just because someone wrote down a supposed plan of God doesn't make it right, because the actual will of God is ineffable. Okay, so. In theory, we're saying, are you saying that it's actually the Bible or are you saying that Angel's version of the Bible is the great plan, that they wrote down their whole thing? I understood it as a parallel to the real world Bible. Yes. Okay, okay, okay. So it's like an angel version um, to, of Bible. Yeah, I thanks. love that. Thank you. That that actually makes so much more sense to me because I I get very confused at this point. Yeah, to me, this is an analogy without saying, yo, guys, the Bible is bullshit because it's written by people. So, you know. So, yeah, because as far as I know, neither Terry nor Neil are religious people. Anymore. So. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. It fucks with their heads enough that they go back to their respected head offices. But that does not mean it's over. Before they do, they <laughs> promise to tattle at Adam to his father. And I love the differentiation here between dad and father because it's very clear. <laughs> and so obviously we have this effect they told him. And Crowley as a demon is very much affected by the devil himself not being happy. <laughs> we have another moment of Shitwell saying bad things despite meaning well because he <sighs> steps in anyone... front of Madame Tracy and he says the what does he say? If anyone wants to hurt the horror of Babylon they gonna have to go through me. So I understand the sentiment but it's still incredibly shitty and also later in the episode he still has like all the, the name calling and everything. Most importantly though 
Aziraphale has his sword back and he is brandishing it. I love that word. <laughs> now, this is the moment. Oh, Satan yeah. is about to come in. And this is the moment where mm -hmm. Aziraphale issues an ultimatum. And I'm not a huge fan of that ultimatum. Oh my god, I love it. It's the best. It is the best motivation that he could have gotten yeah. to Crowley. Also, I don't think that he would have followed through on it. Oh, yeah. My biggest thing is I feel like he more meant it as if you're not going to come up with something we will never be able to talk to each other because we dead. We very, very dead. Uh, no, I took it as but I will never talk to you again even if we could, but if Crowley had not come up with anything and this situation would have been resolved somehow differently, he would have talked to him again. Oh, yeah, for sure. He wouldn't have been able able to stay away because they are so 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 in love and that is why i am okay with this ultimatum because i do not think it was said in seriousness but it works it really it works. works because crowdy gets up the power of love he puts them in a time freeze or something yeah i feel like the, he takes them to a different realm maybe Somewhere in between heaven and hell. At the end of this, he says time is about to continue. So this is some kind of time freeze. Where they are or why it looks like that, no idea. But so time is literally frozen and we have a short moment where Crowley basically explains to Adam what is going to happen. And we get to see them with wings for the first time since episode one, I believe. I kind of love this because they, also the imagery is Adam literally has an angel and a demon on his shoulders. As Raphael says, I was worried that you would be the devil incarnate. I wanted you to be angel incarnate, but you're better than that. You are a human incarnate. This is literally the best possible outcome that they could have hoped for because Adam is so human. Also, we get Crowley saying and laying it down real nice in front of he him. He explains him, but not like childlike. Adam, the reality will listen to you now. It is up to you. And Adam goes, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And Crowley goes, you need to figure it out because you're the only person who can, essentially. I really appreciate because when Gabriel and Belzebub were talking to Adam, they were talking to a child. Exactly. And Crowley and Zerophil both are talking to an equal I'm gonna say. Yeah, because power-wise... He's their superior, but... If you take the power, and if you take his, say, childishness, not childishness, immaturity, yeah. and Lack find of a balance between... Yeah, find a balance between that, it does put them on basically the same level. And so they hold hands for a very short moment. Sadly, when we're back in reality, no more holding hands. And they come back into the present time where time is running now. I really have to say, despite what everyone has been through, I was surprised and impressed that when the devil himself breaks through the concrete, not a single person of them is running away. Because of what they went through. No, but like, even with having been through what we've been through, this is so much worse. <laughs> True that. And so now we go into the final confrontation of the Armageddon, basically. And we have this yeah. conversation, of course, with the difference between you might be my father, but you're not my dad. However, he never says that. Yeah, but like this is the... the... Oh, yeah. No, that's the overall idea. But he never once says you might be my father or you are my father, but you're not my dad. He only says the part you are not my dad. And the most important part is that he says, you never were. Because that is the part that becomes true and retroactively changes reality. Because if the devil never was his dad, then 
he is not the Antichrist and none of this has actually ever happened. Yep, it is, again, extremely simple and extremely effective. Also, I love him with the, you're not my dad, dads don't show up after 11 years, they are there before, they care, like showing the difference between a father and a dad. So I really, really appreciate it. And of course, when the devil vanishes, we see the car with... With his dad. With the actual dad coming. And now it is his real dad. They are now father and son. And it is very, very precious in a way. Mm -hmm. So with this wrapped up, being still halfway through the episode, (laughs) we go to the next scene. And Crowley and Azarafel are sitting on a bench in Flatfield talking about the prophecy. And this is a prophecy that we've heard before. We've seen it before. We've heard it again. And now we finally see again the full picture of it. And for the first time in a very long time, we do get a fucking number for the very last prophecy. And that is 5,004. So I assume that means there were 5,004 prophecies in total, right? If that is the last. Or it is the last that we get to see. Well, as Zerofel says, it's the last of her prophecies. So, I mean, obviously later on we see that there's supposed to be a book too, but that is a different story. Right before we see the prophecy, Zerofel says, imagine if we had been at all competent, which Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that they are so self-aware that... It would have been a really bad thing if they had been competent. And so obviously the prophecy is, when all is said and done, you must choose your faces wisely, for soon enough you will be playing with fire. And then the, for me, emotionally most relevant moment in the episode happens, because the delivery truck from the delivery company drives past them. And I'm like, that is a truck from the delivery company. And none other than Leslie steps out and... I was so incredibly happy for Maud in this moment. Mm-hmm. So Leslie collects the items. I, for a short moment, expected Zerofel to keep the sword because it is his sword. So I was actually surprised that he handed it back. And then, of course, we have this beautiful moment where Crowley, because he does not know that Leslie came back from the dead because Adam restored reality to us. Before all shit happened, basically. He says that the bookstore burned down and he offers Azurafel that he can stay at his place. Which is so cute. It is so fucking adorable. I love it. And he looks like he's gonna take him up on it. Although he does protest a little bit by saying, But I don't think my Sai would have liked that. And this is where Crowley says, We are on our own side. For me, this is a finally moment. Like, finally, it is out in the open. It is the two of us against the rest of the world, literally. And while it is a precarious position to be in, if you are with the one person, clichéically speaking, it's where you're supposed to be, right? (sighs) This is also the moment where the bus shows up and it must be soul-crushing for Crowley to take a bus. Like, every single time he has to transport himself somewhere inside of any sort of a vehicle that's not the Bentley, it must be so soul-crushing for him. Well, this is the first time that he's transporting himself anywhere, so... Which means 
it's the worst that it's ever going to be. Unless Adam did what he did. Well, I mean, he's traveling with Zerofel, so I kind of feel like right at the moment he doesn't really care. So at this point, uh, they are getting on the bus. And I have seen theories that this is the point when they're switch faces. When they're getting on a bus or just before, I couldn't identify it myself. I didn't see it there. I think it happens a little later. But I have heard this is the moment. Just wanted to put it out there. I assume that this is the moment. The moment the bus blocks the view of the two of them is when they switch. And when they are on the bus, they already have switched. This is what I've heard. I didn't notice any proof of that myself. It's the only time that makes sense to me. I assumed that they exchange their faces when they get to London after the bus ride. But Too risky. It just... Too risky. They could have been snatched right there. It's very possible. This is where a lot of theories are coming from. We don't know it for sure. It didn't even cross my mind that there was any other time um, where they possibly could have switched. Like To me, it was yeah. incredibly clear because the bus blocks them for like a tiny second and then the two of them are in the bus. Like probably if we look at the still or something from the bus when they are we inside, might be able. you should be able to tell from like their body language because of how good they are being the other person. Yeah, I would like to double check this and, yeah. and maybe confirm or uh, deny that at the in the summoning episode then. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point actually. No, I, I didn't even think about this because it was so yeah. like, yeah, obviously this is the moment. <laughs> like, I the only reason I thought about it is because I've had this debate before with okay. uh, multiple different people. I didn't realize it was debatable. <laughs> we go into London and we get another sign and this is actually the title drop because this is the title. The very first day of the rest of their lives. Yeah. The bookshop is still here. And it's perfect. Maybe too perfect. But it's not exactly the way it was before because there are new books in there and if I don't know if it made it into the episode, but those books are relevant, they're special. If you don't know what we're talking about, you need to listen to the bonus because there is stuff about it. And if you do know, you know, <laughs> because it's in. <laughs> if you know now, if you don't know, you know. But we're in agreement, this is already, like this is for sure where they have switched, obviously. Oh, they must have, absolutely. fucking -lutely. See, this is the moment we get to see the bookshop is back. And then we see the Bentley David Tennant seeing, walking down the street seeing the Bentley. But not going in the Bentley, but he calls a cab. Catching a taxi. And that gave me a double take because my brain wasn't trying to figure out, is it them or is it, did they switch or something? At this point, my brain just went, but the car is back. Why isn't he driving the car? But this is a very obvious. In theory, it could also mean that he does not want to risk the car to be in a confrontation with hell because it just got put back together so why risk it once again you know i mean yes you could say that but it, that is a stretch but yeah i feel like to this me is it's a, not that much of a stretch but yeah i feel like this is a very very good proof of they're definitely switched already and it does get confirmed later the body language is off already when he's in the bookshop yeah Zerafel, like sure we go back to tedfield and I don't know if you had this with your mom or your parents ever when you had to clean your room and then the comment, I can see the carpet. So many times. It's such a parent comment, right? Adam has cleaned up his room and his mom appreciates that. Because she can now see the carpet, which is very parent. Yeah. It's a very nice, typical kind of interaction between a mother and a child. And I really enjoy the fact that Adam seems to be much more actual, real child. He's so less creepy. 
Like seriously, he now has the vibe of a child. And I'm actually surprised because usually I am incredibly skeptical when it comes to kid actors. Mm. But he comes across so much less creepy to me now. See, so that means that it was intentional. Apparently, which is something I did not expect. Seriously. Nice. Because nice. usually, I don't know if it's if it actually was that way or if it just like registered to me that way. But it really worked. Like nice. he was fucking creepy and he freaked me out. And now he seems like a kid. Yeah. But because it's not all about punishment, his mom goes to meet him halfway and she allows Adam to go to the garden, which is something that I did not connect. I mean, also, why would you punish the poor dog? Like, he needs to exercise the dog. True. He needs to walk him so dog can empty his bowels and Not water. just that. Like, not just that. Also, but that. also this is a, a terrier, some form, and they have all the energy. So it would actually yeah. be really, really bad to, like, force the dog to stay inside all the time. Another household that we need to visit before we get back to our ineffable husbands. Do we have to? Yes, we do, because I love this scene. Because finally, finally, <laughs> we get to see Anathema and Newt. And finally... Anathema asks, why is his car called Dick Turpin? But she prefaces it with, I will regret this. And she ends it with, I regret asking and I am with her. I absolutely am with Newt. I fucking love that. <laughs> because he said it's called Dick Turpin because everywhere it goes, it holds up traffic. And it's so funny. And I love how proud he is of that. But also, I really appreciate... For the record, Vero loves puns. I hate puns. It is no surprised that she loves this and I hate this. I would this. also like to point out that the fact that Anathema asked shows how much her relationship towards Newt has changed in the last 24 hours and it's actually feeling so much more natural for them to be together than it did at the beginning because at the beginning it felt it is strictly because Agnes said this was going to happen. It needed to happen period and this is why we had it. Yeah. While now she is making her choice by asking him about Dick Turpin. She is showing that she doesn't care how dorky he is. She doesn't care that she might regret it or not. She wants to know or she wants him to share because she knows that he wants to share. She is very kind to him and yet they do work together like I like the chemistry between the actors I have to yes. say that's also very good yeah so that helps I am still very much against it but as I have said in the previous episode Newt is the very first person to actually push Anathema to forge her own way so I really appreciate him for that but otherwise everything seems to be so predetermined that that always takes away a certain amount of joy for me. We go back to London we are back at the pond and the secret agent benches with proper secret agents and this is the last time we hear a Queen song in this show Thank you for pointing that out, I completely missed that. The marching band at the very beginning of this scene is playing Lazen on a Sunday afternoon, which of course, we are back to our Lucifer era. The title of the song is incredibly fitting for the scene it is in. So do you think it's a Sunday? It is a Sunday. Do we know it's a Sunday? Yeah, we still haven't changed the day. It's still on the same day. I thought we only had the very first day of the last, for the rest of their lives. I didn't realize we had a day. We got a, did we get a day? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It goes Sunday, the very last day of the first... No, the very first day of the rest of their lives. The very first day of the, you know, the name of the episode. I missed the Sunday. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
after we see the two actual real secret agents having their discussion. My God, did you pay attention to what they were talking about with the mass hallucinations, but ours ate the delegation? Yep. That was hilarious. But we not only have secret agents talk about mass hallucinations that eat their delegations, we also have Crowley and Aziraphale at an ice cream vendor. Mm -hmm where they get ice cream and judging by who buys the ice cream and who gets what, it also feels like, ah, guys, you are not being very subtle. And this is the moment when I realized why Crowley actually didn't take his car because he is no longer Crowley inside that body. And so they have their ice cream and then they turn around and they see Death. Yeah, Aziraphale. Who is a sorted little fucker? I mean, come on, Death. Dramatic much? Do you really have to fucking stalk them? I mean, he's there as a bad omen, right? Because it's good omens, haha. First of all that. Second of all, I feel like he is really, really salty about what happened. So yeah. he just wants to make sure. I would, I would not be surprised, actually, when I think about it now, that he tipped off heaven and hell where Crowley and Azarafel are right now so they can collect them. I would not be surprised. Like, this death is a salty, petty little bitch. I feel him, don't get me wrong. <laughs> The angels and the demons show up. The angels look their usual stupidly dressed self. Mm -hmm. But the demons are in costume, basically. Well, they are undercover. Yeah, why? Because that's just who they are. Why not? Okay, so you have no answer. Because like, it made no sense to me that the angels were in their normal stupid angel outfits. And the demons were undercover in human clothing and wigs and everything and just look completely ridiculous. I feel like hell or demons just have much better grasp on how to blend in with humanity. No, 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 no. I mean, come on, Hester looked absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, but if you don't look too close... No. You might overlook him. No. No, 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 no. That, that argumentation does not work for me at all. And of course, here, both of them are being taken away. And when Crowley gets slammed on the floor and dragged off, he says, Tickety-boo! And that, in my opinion, is the final giveaway that this is not Crowley. This is, in fact, Israfel. Yeah. If you weren't sure, rewatch this scene and watch their faces real, real close. Because you can see from their expressions and the way they talk to each other, mm. they are not themselves. So absolutely there with you for that. Also, the kidnappings are absolutely fucking brutal. Yep, and in broad daylight. And in broad daylight. So they bring Michael Sheen. I'm going to just call them by the actors because it's it feels very long to say Azurafel who's actually Crowley. Oh no, I just called them Azurafel and Crowley. Like... The, the one they're presenting as. Oh, so not the one who they actually are. Yeah, I just took them at face value because now it's clear who they are. Okay, so anyway. Now we can go with your approach, like it works. Just make sure Michael you don't Sheen. say Michael because Michael the angel shows up. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Sheen is brought up to heaven. He gets tied to a chair. The ropes are white, obviously, because we're in heaven, so the ropes have to be white. So we now have a lot of heaven, hell, cutting back and forth happening in this scene and in the next few scenes. So I just mix it all together. It's very dramatic down in hell when Michael mm -hmm. brings down the holy water. Also, yeah, did, we are now caught up to the cold open. We have a beautiful insult that is being slung here and that is called wank wings. Which, very British, I really appreciate it, I love it. Michael has this very beautiful, flared 
sleeves dress top and it's obviously very obviously it's deliberate that Michael wears this because this way when he tips over the the carafe thingy we do not see that it's connected to something else and the water can just keep pouring and pouring and pouring so very well done absolutely loving it and I love the fact that it just does not stop pouring it's such an easy simple effect but it is fucking hilarious to me I don't know why I do enjoy the poetry of their punishment though the fact that they will extinct him by holy water to quote by using what he used on Leaguer because they are also petty and also it makes sense because it feels like both uh, holy water and hellfire are the only substance that thoroughly will destroy the essence of uh, either a demon or an angel yes I kind of did not like the, oh, we have to test it. Let's drop the cute, tiny little demon chubby cute? thingy. He, uh, okay, the I'm... Asher was not cute. Yes, he was. He's like a round ball. Very cute. Um, So I okay. was not a fan of that, that we dropped the chubby, cute little demon in there. Well... Again, we saw it very differently because I, first of all, didn't see him as cute. <laughs> but also it makes sense to me because demons are extremely untrusty towards angels regardless of their communication or anything like that. So it made very good sense to me that they would check it while angels just took it at face value. Like, is it a regular fire or is it a hellfire? <laughs> eh, it's fine, you know. But yeah, like, it is It is a little cruel, but I feel like it's incorrect. All right. But I feel like it's in character. Speaking of the chubby little demon, we cut over to London and Shadwell is reading. So you did yeah. notice that the illustration is the chubby little demon. Yes, it made me very happy because I love these little things that bring the fabric of the story together. So there are some like squigglies added onto the page because he's wearing like drawn on glasses and shit like that. But IMDb says that the text that is being read here is from the preface to Sir William F. Barrett, FRS, on the threshold of the unseen, an examination of the phenomena of spiritualism and of the evidence for survival after death, 1918. So the text apparently is from a proper book, but book, the illustration yeah. obviously is not because it's the chubby demon. <laughs> okay, and now we get something that I wasn't a huge fan of. I hate it. Yeah, Madame Tracy shows up at Chadwell's door and he tells her to leave the plate outside and, and obviously that kind of conversation was fine. Oh, I just feel like since we've been through so much together, I made a space at a table for you and he's actually going. But what I hate is that she doesn't look like Madame Tracy anymore. Also, he still calls her Jezebel and the den of inequity and everything. I hate it. Yeah. What I do not understand why she is into him. I do not understand what she sees in him. This makes even less sense to me than Newton and Ephema. I feel like she's always had a soft spot for him because she feels like he's just doing what he's doing to survive and he actually has a very good heart. But I Does not don't work for me. see it. Yep. Does yeah. not work for me. Did not come across for me. I don't like I like the actress for Madame Tracy. I do not see the chemistry here and I don't enjoy it. Yeah. So yeah, not a fan. Okay. Back to the pulsifers. 
Back to that field. This <laughs> I very much enjoyed. Yeah, Newt is the one who opens the door. And there is this scrappy little lawyer going, oh, Mr. Pulsifer. And with he goes, the yeah, bequest. That is, that is me. And then he starts talking about a wife. And as we can see from Newt's face, he is horrified by the idea because they've been literally together for 24 hours. Yeah. Chill. Chill, Agatha. Chill. Touch grass, Agnes. 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 Fuck. I, I did it again. Oops, I did it again. I called her Agatha. I know. It was Agatha all along. Yeah. Chill, Agnes. Chill. Touch grass. <laughs> They bring in the box and there's this whole shebang around the box and we get to see the flashback of what happens with the second box and stuff like that. I am on board with every single thing on there until we realize that there is a volume two inside the box. Now, lawyer runs away. And I really enjoyed that part with like Agnes writing that letter. Like that was hilarious to me. Incredible. That's as, as I said, that I liked. Mm. Anathema seeing the book and you could see her features literally drop. Yeah, because she thought she was free. In, exactly. And I like the fact that she was free and she wanted to be free. That something has changed in her. She was no longer just made a to just follow yep. Agnes's prophecies. She had her own life and she was excited to build it. And when she sees the book, that kind of vanishes. And she seems to have Agnes looming over her once more. The thing is, since Agnes seems to be pretty much omniscient, one has to wonder if Agnes didn't know what was happening in the next few scenes as well. So I'm yeah. very curious. But we're going to talk about that in the end. Yeah, we're going to talk about in the, the summoning yeah. as well. I'm, I'm keeping that for later. Anathema is very much over this, and I am very much with Anathema because Same. fuck this shit. <laughs> Go, girl. You deserve your freedom. We go back to London for a very short moment to Chitwell and Madame Tracy. Yeah. I don't care. I don't want them. I have nothing. The one thing that I have noticed in this scene, it's something that we didn't mention. When Newt and Anathema first wake up in the bed, she says, you are actually a very good witch finder because you found me. Yeah, and Madame Tracy While says the same Madame thing. Madame Tracy say, says the same thing, but she's not much of a witch and Shitwell is not much of a witch finder. They just found each other. I agree with you. I'm not on board with this relationship in a sense that it's. I don't feel it emotionally. I don't feel the connection at all between me and them or between each them, of them to each other. Yeah. It's just not working for me as as well as it's intended to. But I feel like the connection is more between or the parallel is more between Anathema and Madame Tracy, which I kind of like. So I felt compelled to mention that. We go back to the heaven and hell thing. Finally, for the first time, I noticed the purple eyes. <laughs> well, about fucking time. <laughs> I know. No, because I was just going through this in episode four. We talked about this. Mm. And I literally went back to the episode and tried to find it in the scene that we were, where you pointed it out. Yeah. And I couldn't see it. <laughs> wow. It's like freeze framing through the scene. I couldn't fucking see it. This time it's extremely prominent. Once you see it, you can't so, unsee it. Like, seriously, every time now you watch any of those episodes, they're going to be staring into your soul, basically. Come at me, John Hamm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I absolutely love the fact that Gabriel is cursing here. <laughs> yes. <sighs> like, he's really losing his cool. I'm the Archangel fucking Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> 
he is really losing the power and the grip over He's losing his confidence. Yeah. Because the things are no longer going his way. He is very American in that way. And I think that this is a very beautiful detail that I kind of see. This is completely random, but the only reason I see it that way is because when uh, Czech ice hockey was like at the top, every time they would play Americans, the Americans would be like really good until they started losing. And once they are starting losing, they get really aggressive and <laughs> frustrated and very, very, very not good at their job. I feel like this is a... And therefore, to me, this is an American trait. And by John Hamm being the one playing Gabriel and Gabriel having an American accent, this is where it connects for me for some so, reason. So, dear American listeners, are you bad losers? Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> says something at some point, or rather Michael Sheen says something at this point where he's getting up, which is like, maybe I could offer something, whatever. And my brain just instantly went, well, maybe you wanted to say, can I tempt you to reconsider? <laughs> Because that's the most crawly thing that he could have said at that point. He said, maybe you want to reconsider or something like that. He didn't quite say it, but he just said, can I tempt you in different words? So yet another huge drop off. This is crawly, bitches. This is crawly. I did not really see that there. <laughs> We go downstairs and... David Tennant is lounging in the bathtub. I don't understand why he has his socks on. I hate it. People, please take off your socks together with your pants. It is one motion. With each pant leg, you can take off the matching sock. Do not leave on the socks. It looks horrible. I don't know. I think it looks kind of cute. No, I hate it. So he's lounging in there and he asks for a rubber duck. And somehow this struck me as an incredibly Aziraphale thing to do. Even though it's way more cheeky than he usually is. But it struck me as a very British thing. And he's been cheekier and cheekier go going through the season. So it makes complete sense that he escalated at this moment. And it's so good. Obviously, whenever I come across the term rubber duck, you do know the video of the dude with the rubber duck in the shared apartment, with the rubber ducks in the bathroom. No. Oh my god, I shall send you a link and you shall watch it and you will fucking nearly piss yourself laughing. I really hope that this is not one of these, you will regret watching this and I no. just want you to, in pain because I'm also in pain. No, no, no. Like I've shown this to so many people and everyone who sees this for the first time is nearly crying with laughter. Okay. I'll take it. So, Thank you very much. Someone showed it to me at a convention once on a phone. And ever since then, I have been spreading joy because it is so fucking hilarious. And ever since then, I have a much higher appreciation for rubber ducks. <laughs> Why do I feel like rubber duck is connected to something else? <gasps> oh, that is a Terry Pratchett thing. Is it? I'm quite sure that the, it is a Terry Pratchett thing from uh, like multiple of his novels. It's a Discworld thing. Okay, nice. I did not know that. Not only do we have David Tennant in the holy bathtub, which in itself already sounds wrong, but up in heaven we have Michael Sheen in the fire column, basically. Ah. And IMDb points out that the way Michael Sheen growls and spits fire at Gabriel is very reminiscent of the way Crowley growled at one of the executives at the paintball thingy. So here we have an exact uh, copy of a mannerism And once a again. Tracking. So it's also very crawly. It's it's very 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 clear 
once again that they are behaving like the other person. So I absolutely love it. Though I have to say, even given the fact, as you stated, that Aziraphale is getting more and more cheeky as the season progressed, requesting a bath towel from Michael was further than I expected him to be, but I absolutely love it. It is a perfection. I love that they are essentially, what they're doing is securing a whole blown, whole arse future for themselves. They are making sure they are carving a little place of, little slice of heaven on earth for the two of them. Well, at least for a while. Where they will not be bothered, at least for now. We have to go back to Tadfields yet again. One last time. One last time. Oh, another random Hamilton. So we are in a park or a garden or something. And Anathema is having a little fire with Newt. Mm -hmm. And she's burning the second book without reading it. Yep. Go girl. This genuinely surprised me. I am very happy for her, but I did not expect this. See, my issue with that is this is such a thing. I would be surprised if Agnes didn't see this. Right? I am quite sure that there is another copy of this somewhere and it's gonna hit Anathema later. Or somebody else. Maybe there's a distant cousin of Anathema that that they don't know about because it's not a direct descendant of Agnes. So this is something I want to talk about in the summoning episode. Yeah, there are theories. But yes, I am very proud at this moment of Anathema to making the choice for herself and choosing her and her life over a life of a descendant. As much as I'm not a fan of the pairing, I'm pretty sure this is in parts due to the fact that Newt is very supportive of her being her own person. Yes. So they have that going for them. From the park in Tadfields, we cut over into the garden because Adam is stuck in the garden as he tells his friends who come by to check on him because the mom said he can't come out, so they go over to the back because kids, you know? And I like it. Like, the interaction between the kids, they are still friends they are still It's happy. very childlike as well. That whole conversation about I'm going to be grounded for years and years and years and years to come. Tomorrow's and good. And Pepper goes like, what about tomorrow? Ah, tomorrow's good. They would have forgotten about it by tomorrow. It's just the perception of time. Actually, no, this is not childlike. This gives more credence to your previous statement that the memory of the events are getting more and more hazy in people's brains. Hmm. Because by tomorrow, the fact that there is something that Adam should be grounded for is going to be gone from his father's mind. I did not expect that theory to come back to haunt me. But like this would give weight to your theory. Yeah. So I don't love it in this moment, but okay. <laughs> you don't like being right. <laughs> I know, I know. Not like this. Never like this. Not like this. But then we see the them move on and he is left alone with Dog. And he has this perfect conversation with Dog. Yes. And I very much love this because obviously we are in a garden and Adam is stuck in the garden and in a very short moment he's going to steal an apple and eat. This time we have no vile woman to blame for any of this. But he basically makes it happen himself. Like he eggs on Dog to run off. I'm pretty sure some residue of power is what makes the, the hedge part yep. go go dead. So this time it is Adam's responsibility and Adam's responsibility alone that he is leaving the garden and eating the apple. 
And I love it. It's really, really well done. And through this, we get the monologue of God. And she's talking about how this was a beautiful summer and how this was the last summer that would be this perfect. None of these summers that are to come are going to be this perfect anymore. Why? Well, because Adam's not going to have his power to keep them perfect for once. This makes me wonder, by the way, because Adam is 11. Yes. And he apparently still has a residue of his powers. But, so, basically, when you go back into your childhood growing up, even if the summers weren't perfect, perfect, or if the holidays weren't perfect, when we were children, I feel like we tended to make them perfect. Mm -hmm. But the older... In our minds, yeah. Then old, not, not just in our minds, but, like, we made the best of it, and then it was perfect because we spent them with friends or with our books or with whatever. Um, but the older we got, the more reality is crouching in, and thus, automatically, there is less space until there is no space for perfect anymore you know mm -hmm. so to me this is also very much a parable of growing up oh that's making it even sadder because the next summers cannot be perfect because he is leaving childhood behind oh come on okay rude <laughs> so you, you didn't see it that way <laughs> that's extremely rude i would like to protest Okay, I actually really like my reading of that. Yes, I like it. Fuck you. <laughs> We go to London for the final time, into the final scene. So, first of all, this park. Some people claim it's a certain park. We found the park. It wasn't the park. You came up with a different name, I think. So we're, we're going to double check that. Double, triple We're going to compare notes. I um. have a little list. They are sitting in a park, which is not the Berkeley Park, technically, but it is the Berkeley Park. And they are sitting in such obvious ways like the other person. It's hilarious. If it wasn't clear, yeah. like crystal clear by now, the way they're sitting and the way that they're positioned on the bench. And how the they bench, talk, everything. It's perfect. It is so obvious. Mm -hmm. So then when they do swap back into their bodies, it is crystal clear. There is zero doubts about it that this has happened, that Agnes for the last time was correct and she saved their lives, which I am internally great for well to me that just means she has more plans for them stop being so ne such a negative lena <laughs> well i am negative nancy that kind of is my job description <laughs> you are the happy person between the two of us i'm sorry that is very true which is slightly <laughs> depressing <laughs> i'm not gonna lie I don't think it's looking looking up for us on the on the happy department when it comes to these things. <laughs> They have this conversation and throughout this conversation there are several realizations that either or both of them have and one of those is actually something that I also want to talk in detail about in the summoning episode mm -hmm. and that is when Crowley talks about that he does not think that this was it that this was the apocalypse like capital T capital A mm -hmm. but that the big one that will be coming at some point is all of us against all of them meaning heaven and hell versus all of human or all of humanity but now it is also time for our inevitable husbands to leave this garden <laughs> all the gardens are being left because fuck patriarchy what okay how is that connecting to that yeah i, I, I don't know. really know but okay And of course, here we have the a table at the Ritz miraculously opened up, which A, shows us that Xerophel, despite being at odds with heaven, can still make miracles. Mm -hmm. So that's important. And B, of course, we know what's coming. The Ritz, let's have 
food there. Let's have Crowley watch you eat oh. there. And this already um, makes me tear up a bit. And then, of course, they make it worse because like we're, we're in the Ritz now, right? Mm-hmm. And Zerafal says to Crowley that all of this proved to him that there is just enough good in Crowley. And Crowley, of course, counters this with that Zerafel is just enough of a bastard to be worth knowing. This is literally a confession of love. This is beautifully done. And then, of course, they cheer with the glasses and their to their the toast world. is to the world. Because together, like they are each other's world and they enjoy the world. And so... Shut up! <laughs> did you also not see that they are each other's They are each world? other's world? No. Okay. I did not see that. Okay. But it's beautiful. That's very poetic. I didn't expect... And very romantic. I didn't expect that from you. Well... But uh, I like it. I can see it, even if I can't, like, emphasize with it as much. They do cheer and then we get the voiceover again. Yes. Because God is speaking. And what is God (laughs) God saying? She says that in that very moment... A nightingale did really sing in Berkeley Square for the first time ever, even though you couldn't hear him over the traffic. And, and then our the credits start final rolling song. with the final song. Yeah. yeah, the final song starts playing. We get the close up to the actual nightingale singing in Berkeley Square. It's just with the credits and the song and the two angels dining in Ritz. And so usually Amazon automatically like shrinks the size of the credits or skips over to the next episode. This does not happen here. So it's obviously programmed in this way that you can actually watch the entire credits with the song playing. And when I talked about Neil in my bonus episode, he has stated that people do come up to him and tell him that they actually like sit through the credits to listen to the entire song. And so obviously I did that as well. And the credits do say at one point, with special thanks to Queen. And at the very, very end, the credits say for Terry. I missed that. I was just listening to the song, getting lost in the music. That is like the, the last thingy that you see. And that is for Terry. And that, of course, is incredibly fitting. So let's wrap this up. Final episode of the first season. I honestly had not remembered how many untied plot lines we still have at this end. When I first heard that we are getting a season two, I was very much confused. Because in my memory, I had thought everything was neatly wrapped up. But looking at it now, there are so many fucking questions. I don't think we know anything yet what season two will be about. But for Except- me but for me there's more than enough things that would work well for both a continuation of our general story or even several focuses on some of the side quests, so to say. Mostly I am very happy that our ineffable husbands are now firmly on their own side, though I very much doubt that they are getting a happily ever after. Let's see when we shall know more and what we shall know more. We will be here and we will talk about it at length. See, this is the nice thing about not having have seen season two yet or hear anything about it. We can actually use our summoning episode to come up with the real predictions. Oh yeah, and we will. And we will. So if you want to hear some wacky shit, Or if you want to send us wacky shit. Oh no, by the time this comes out, it's already way too late. Oh yeah. I mean, you can feel free to send us wacky shit. Maybe we will record reading out the wacky shit episode 
just for you out there, <laughs> like an extra episode. We don't know. A lot of things are up in the air right now. And so with this, we, we say thank you for listening. If you want to go follow back us to on my social media, thoughts. you can yes, find us I as find the story Apple Truth on Twitter beautiful. and Instagram. I didn't really we will keep you updated if or when Twitter crashes from and what I know, and You can also send us your comments and complaints to goodomens at gives me If you want to get that sweet, sweet extra content, early episode release, and more, like six seasons of another show more, head to patreon.com slash TAOT podcast. And if you like what you hear, please do write and so They help a ridiculous amount. And don't forget to pester all your friends about us. Thank you. Bye. And I do wonder... That happens. Again, extremely elegant solution. Anywho, let's end this praise first just by saying <laughs> it is a joy and it will forever be a joy for me to watch this story be brought to life by the cast and crew of this fucking show.